0: Uh, If you have a Bible, please turn with me to Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. And at the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. Pray with me one more time. Father in heaven, I would pray that this morning you would show us again from your word the great truth, the great reveal of how your promises kept. The promises you made from way back in your word in Genesis 315 and throughout Scripture, the promise to restore your people, to redeem humanity, and to set aside a special people for your namesake. Help us to marvel and to see at this truth again and, and treasure it up as Mary did. We pray these things in Jesus' name, Amen. Well, back in July of 2011, uh, I was in seminary. I was a first-year seminary student, and my wife and I, we were expecting our first child, our daughter, Mercedes, and we were super excited. I don't recommend having a baby in seminary, but, you know, it's not something we planned for. Um, I was super excited to have uh, a daughter. I was had no idea what to expect, though. Obviously, this is the first time you go through something like this, there's, I had brothers and sisters, but you're not really prepared for what's going to come. I mean, uh, the man is not in that process of helping to carry the baby, right? Uh, I'm thinking, what does the birth process look like? Is the baby going to come early, uh, late? Sometimes, you know, they come different times, not quite nine months. Uh, will she look like Teresa? Uh, will she look like me? I won that one. Um <laughs> As a father, I just had no idea what was going to happen. And really, I'm not a person who likes medical situations. I'm not going to go into any details, but it's not something you know—just medical anything. I, I cut my hand once, and I nearly fainted because of the blood. So I was nervous to go through that process. And when labor came, when finally ready to have the baby, uh, it was—it felt like a five-day labor process, right? The first child. Um, We went to the hospital, and then they sent us back home, and we waited, you know, and then went back to the hospital. So it took a long time. But finally, we went to the hospital, we had the delivery, and there was Mercedes. There she was, my daughter. She's born. And I can't tell you the relief, the joy, and the wonder I felt at being a new dad with a new baby. To get to meet this child that is ours. Well, in a similar way, our series on the Christmas promises is also about waiting for a child to be born. There is this expectation, this eager longing, this desire for this son, this seed, this king to come. But imagine, unlike my child that was pretty much going to come in nine months, Right? Imagine not knowing when this seed is going to come. Not knowing how exactly this promise is going to be kept by God. How this child was going to be born. And not just any child, but the one who's going to come and save the world. So two weeks ago, Pastor Aubrey preached from Genesis 3.15 on the promised offspring. The one who would come and crush the head of the serpent... And then last week, Pastor Christian preached from Isaiah 9, 1 through 7 on the promised king, who is foretold, who will come and be a light to the people of Israel who are living in great darkness. His kingdom will be established, his government will be on the government will be on his shoulders, and he will reign with justice and peace forevermore. So, how long has all of humanity waited for an answer for death and darkness? How will God keep these promises to his people? When would the light of life break through? So today we're going to see the fulfillment of God's glorious promises finally coming true. A baby is born. The light of the world has come. And it is our Lord Jesus Christ. This morning we will see God bring forth these promises in Luke 2, 1-21 in three scenes. Scene 1. The Son is born. Scene two, the Savior is revealed. And scene three, the saying is made known. It's my prayer that our hearts would rejoice anew as we again see God's promises kept to us. May we hear again this good news of the birth of a Savior, the one the world has been waiting for. May we treasure that news in our hearts. So turn with me to the beginning of Luke. To scene one, the son is born. The coming of the promised one of Israel begins in Luke chapter two, verse one, with a decree being made by Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. And this registration was for the purpose of paying uh, taxes to the Roman government, and so that required every adult male to return to his home, uh, his home uh, of birth, and be registered there. Verse four says. Joseph went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with, his, with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. The child that was to be born was, the, was to rule as a rightful king in Israel. Our passage earlier in Mike, Micah 5.2 that was read earlier makes it clear that this little town of Bethlehem was to be the birthplace of the new king. Not Zion, which was typically associated with David. Not Jerusalem, but Bethlehem. And so Mary is with Joseph. They're betrothed. They're not yet fully married. They have not consummated the marriage. This reminds us of what was spoken in the previous chapter in Luke 1 to Mary. Her pregnancy is by a supernatural work of the Holy Spirit. Mary would give birth to Jesus as a virgin. Why is this important? Why do we as Christians believe that Jesus was not born through normal conception between a man and woman, but by a supernatural work of God? Because every human being born after Adam received the guilt of Adam's sin. Adam was our representative, and his his sin stains us all. Jesus could not have been born by normal means, else he would have carried that same stain of sin and would thus be insufficient, an insufficient sacrifice on our behalf. We needed a new Adam, a new representative who would not be stained by the sin of Adam. Verses 6 through 7 plainly tell of the birth. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son, wrapped him in swaddling cloths, and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. Finally, Mary's time had come. She's carried this child for nine months. She's heard the angel of the Lord speak to her again from chapter 1, that this child was to be the ruler, to, be, uh, to reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom, will, there will be no end, it says in verse 33. And so she's carrying this child, wondering how that's going to take place. What will that really look like? I'm imagining her living as a uh, a vulnerable, low-status Jewish woman, while the Roman Empire continues to dominate every aspect of their nation. Roman soldiers walking around in the market streets, uh, dominating the political system. And how is the baby that she's carrying going to be a king? How is this baby going to expel the Roman Empire? Is that how this king that she's carrying is that how he's going to rule? We'll fast forward to where she is there with her betrothed. She's exhausted after travel. Um, She left to give birth. uh, She's left there to give birth in the very place that livestock feed. In a manger, it's not the typical birthplace of a king. It's not where you would expect God, who is condescending to take human form, would choose to be born. I mean, think of the places God dwelled in the Old Testament. Think of the temple, the tabernacle, or that Holy of Holies, right? In the very central of the temple where no one could go. It was, or, it was ornate. It was a huge structure. There was an army of Levit- the Levitical priests that would go in to serve at this temple because this is where God dwelt. And here in Luke 2, at the birth of the Son of God, the moment when the great, unchangeable, omnipotent, glorious God came down to earth and became man. It's just Joseph, Mary, some stragglers in a dirty manger. I'm sure there was dirt, a lot of dirt, and there's probably some animals. And Jesus is born in the most humble of circumstances. He is born a man with all of human frailty and weakness, yet without sin, while still be fully being fully God. Friends, God could have done this a number of different ways, right? God could have sent Jesus down with all the pomp and circumstance, with all the riches, might, and fame, and with an army as a conquering king. Jesus could have been born in a palace attended by a myriad of servants. But no, in God's perfect plan, Jesus has come in humility, low and in obscurity. That is God's plan. And this is in part to make fools of those who think they are wise, to turn upside down the expectations of the whole world, of who kings are and who God is. And just notice how Luke records that the ruler of the known world, Caesar Augustus, this is the most famous man on the planet at the time, ruled all over Uh, The the Roman Empire would stretch all over Europe and Asia and to Africa. Caesar was so important, he was venerated as a god, a man worshipped as God. And what does God do? He treats these emperors and Quirinius, the governor, as mere pawns to do the work of organizing a census. God uses these earthly emperors and rulers as mere puppets to move Joseph and Mary where he wants them, in Bethlehem, to give birth to the Son of God, where God became a man. I think this is a lesson for us as well. This is how God still works. You may be from certain places in the world, and you think that uh, the government is the prime authority. Maybe you live right now and you think, man, the government is not the supreme authority, And the Bible would tell you, no, it is not. God is the one who sovereignly reigns and rules. And the kings of this earth are mere puppets for him to do his will. And he does whatever he wills. And he establishes his kingdom. This is also how he works through the weakness of human beings. God works through ordinary believers like Mary in ordinary places Building his kingdom. It's through ordinary believers like you and me, and how many of you feel ordinary? I feel very ordinary. And through ordinary churches like ECC, God's eternal plans are being fulfilled. So, where things seem ordinary and commonplace in our ordinary lives, in the ordinary circumstances of those who love him, there the King of Kings is at work fulfilling. His eternal purposes. So the Son is born. That was scene one. Scene two now, we move to the Savior is revealed. The Savior is revealed. Verse eight says, And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appears to them. And the glory of the Lord shone around them and they were filled with great fear. So right after Jesus' birth, It shifts from being in the manger scene to now we're outside of Jerusalem and there are shepherds out in the field and all of a sudden they are in the presence of an angel, a messenger, surrounded by the glory of God and they're terrified about being in the presence of this angel and God's glory. And the angel says, Fear not, for behold, I bring you goodness goodness of great joy that will be for all the people. A single angel with the glory of God, surround these shepherds. Shepherds back then were, they were the low-class people. They're typical agrarian outside the camp. They don't, they're not part of society. Maybe they smelled a little bit like the sheep they were around. And they're tending their sheep. And these are the first recipients of the proclamation from heaven of the good news of Jesus' birth. You know, you often have these proclamations. I know that when Mercedes is born, we call all of our friends. We tell them, hey, the baby's been born. You send the photos. You take a million photos of the first kid. The third kid gets no photos, right? <laughs> and you're declaring, you're telling your people, your family, hey, remember, we've waited nine months. The baby's born. And just like, um, just like Mercedes is being born, Jesus is announced born to the world. Except there's something different about Jesus' announcement. It's a little more ramped up, right? With With all this good news that's being spoken by the angels, it's not merely to the family of Jesus. The angels come and they declare this good news not just to the tribe of Judah, or it's not limited to the people of Israel. This good news is for the whole world. This news is certainly better than Caesar Augustus' proclamation that we need to pay taxes, right? But we, we, we haven't yet heard, what is this good news? What is the good news that the angels would bring that would prompt the Lord to send His glory and this proclaiming, messaging angel to earth? Verse 11 says, For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. So what is this significance? This is the most pivotal line, in my opinion, of this section. Verse 11, For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. We get his title. We get an understanding of who Jesus is. Jesus is the King. The whole of the Old Testament is a story of God redeeming himself a remnant people. And that remnant, that central saving element of God saving his people is through an anointed king. God had set up a king named David, right? He promised in 2 Samuel 7 that it would be David's line who would rule forever in Israel. But if you look at the history of Israel and they lose confidence in that Davidic line. They no longer obey God and instead they turn to Uh, slavery they turn to idolatry to the pagan world and all the rest of the old testament is proclamation after proclamation of the coming judgment that will will come and then promises too of restoring that davidic line it's always through the line of david that god is going to send his son it's going to be that king because god is going to keep that promise And we go back to Micah 5, 2, where it's promised that the ruler is going to come from Bethlehem. And at the time that Micah wrote that, it was right before both Israel and Judah, both kingdoms, all of God's people were eventually sent off and captured, taken away into Assyria and to Babylon. And they would wait 800 years for this promise to come true. 800 years from that time, longing, waiting for redemption. And they really didn't know at that time what that redemption was going to look like. Back in Micah, those, these prophecies are being foretold, but no one knows who it's actually going to be. When is it going to come? What is it going to look like? And many people in the time of the, the Gospels, if you read through the Gospels, were expecting a political warrior king. They were expecting a restoration of the glory of Israel in the time of Solomon, And that's not how it looks like Jesus is going to come. But going back to the proclamation, the the angels, when they came, proclaimed a Savior had come. And this is not a future proclamation. This is not a distant thing. This is happening today. It is here today that the Christ has come. The word Christ means anointed one. It's synonymous in the Old Testament with the word Messiah. And and if you look at the Old Testament, the, the language of anointing is always identified with the kings of Israel who are anointed to rule and reign. Jesus is the Savior, the anointed one, the king, whose kingdom and rule will not end. This is the heralding of a new ruler. The installation of a new head of state. And the angels are saying that this has happened now. It's come to pass now. It's not going to happen tomorrow. It's not going to happen in the future. It has already happened today in Bethlehem. A Savior, the Messiah, is born. Verse 12 says, And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And I love this. Next verse, verse 13. And suddenly... There was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. I just love this because initially you have this single angel proclaiming to the shepherds that Jesus has been born. And then when he finishes this message, when he gives the declaration, the proclamation, there is this explosion of heavenly angels bursting forth in praise to God. What a sight that would have been! It's tempting to read the story as we might every year and have in our minds pictures of these chubby angels, you know, these cherubs from old Renaissance paintings. Uh, or Think about the massive amount of commercialization, right? You have glittering, glitzy angels everywhere. And we get desensitized to the awe and majesty of what they might represent. When the angelic beings come into contact with us mortals, they are overwhelming in their glory. Think of the Old Testament accounts, the presence of God itself, the glory of God. This interaction is is holy, amazing, and totally leaves you destitute. Think of Isaiah in chapter 6 when he sees the train of God's glory and he is undone because he has seen something that is so terrifying for him. Why is that terrifying? Why is that scary? Why does the angel have to say, fear not? Because He is holy, and we are not. He is good, and we are not. He is righteous, and we are not. God is the consuming fire, and we are wheat and chaff that deserve to be burned up by His holy fire. In all reality, if God is going to announce back in the Old Testament time, in the time of Luke's Gospel, that He is coming, His presence is going to be brought in, That's terrifying, because that means death. So how can this be good news? How is it that the angel can come and proclaim good news to the shepherds, let alone do not fear? How is this good news for the whole world that is beset in sin? Well, a lot of people like to read the first part of verse 14. Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace. Amen. And they stop reading. As if Jesus came to bring peace to the world, full stop. Jesus did not come to bring peace among all the peoples of the earth, just on their own. In fact, he says later in Matthew 10, 34, he comes not to bring the peace, but a sword. What does that mean? It means that as Jesus comes, anyone who follows Jesus is at enmity with the world. Namely, the world is going to hate Jesus and his followers. I think you know what I'm talking about. If you are someone who follows Jesus, you have faced something like this in your life. Hatred, enmity, conflict. In fact, if we are living our lives and we don't have opposition to anything we do, we should ask ourselves, are we really following Christ? So no, Jesus has not come to bring peace Blanket peace for the whole world. Like the world says, you know, peace, peace. Love, joy, peace. We just throw those words out there. Jesus has come to bring peace between God and his people. The peace that Jesus will bring is a peace that comes among those with whom he is pleased. This is the peace that you and I can have as sinners before a righteous God. How is it that God can be pleased with human beings who have fallen so far as we have rejected God, we have spurned Him, we've lived on our own pleasure, we've lied, we've cheated, stolen, killed, hated, reviled? What could we do that would make God pleased with us? The answer is nothing. There's nothing we can do to appease God, my friends. There's nothing that Adam and Eve could do to restore the broken relationship that their sin Cost, and nor is there anything else that we could do to have God totally pleased with us to restore a relationship on our own. Now, I know what you may be thinking hey, I think I'm pretty good. I mean, I'm a nice person, I always pay Milwaukee parking, and I mostly am telling the truth. Everything that is wrong with me are just minor little things. Well, friend, let me tell you, that doesn't cut it. We have sinned against an almighty God. Through and through, we are sinners. And we owe him repayment on a debt that is infinite, because he is infinite. For my non-Christian friend here, perhaps you feel like you can earn your way into God's favor. Let me just say that you can't. You cannot meet God's standard for moral perfection, maybe this makes you feel like you're despairing a bit. There's nothing you can do to please God, and God nothing nothing that you can do that God will accept you of your own merit. This should leave us with despair, I think. What hope then is there really? Who could meet God's standard? Well, friends, how gracious! is this God then who sends us a Savior, the anointed one, the Lord. He comes as a baby, born, wrapped in swanly cloths, lying in a manger, and just like any other baby that would be born. But this baby has come to be a sacrifice. The rejoicing that the angels are doing is not merely at God becoming man and taking on human flesh It's also the presentation of a sacrifice that will redeem humanity, that will cover our sins. By trusting in Him, by believing in this work that will come 33 years, about so after His birth, His dying on the cross, His blood poured out, His blood will cover you. This is the good news that the angels are proclaiming. This should lead to joy in our hearts. That God would make a way for us to Him through His beloved Son. And when you think about it, it's truly mind-blowing. It's truly mind-blowing. When you think about what the angels are truly proclaiming, that there is joy at something so heinous as the cross and the crucifixion of Jesus. It can only be glorious because God has so ordained it. He's planned it. And he's planned it to bring him glory. So scene one is the birth of the son. Scene two, we saw the Savior revealed. And now in scene three, the saying is made known. Verse 15 says, When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they 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 made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. The reaction of the shepherds is amazement, it's wonder, it's an eagerness to run in haste and tell Mary. But don't forget the piece that is so important. They believed. It produced faith when it was made known to them the truth of this child. The angels declare the good news to the shepherds. This is the chain reaction, right? The angels declare the good news to the shepherds to which the shepherds respond in faith, eager to go and see the child. And then in verse 17, they run to Mary and Joseph and they made known the saying that had been told them about the child. How does Mary respond? Verse 19, she treasures up all these things, pondering them in her heart. It's not just her. The previous verse, verse 18, all who heard it wondered what the shepherds had told them. There were other people with Mary and Joseph that heard the testimony of the shepherds, and they too wondered. Really, when you think about these shepherds, they are the marginal people. They are the forgettable people. They are unnamed. We don't have names. We just have their profession. Kind of like normal people like you and me, maybe. And they become the very first evangelists. They have heard the divine declaration about Christ from the angels, and now Joseph, Mary, and whoever else was with them have heard the same testimony from what the angels declared. Through the testimony of now these human witnesses, God intended the good news of the Savior being born to be carried by a small group of shepherds. This is not the usual crew you'd want to carry good news, right? When you have a king who's sending out news, you send... Uh, you know, heralds, you have, I don't know, flags back then or something like that. Certainly today, you send the most polished person who's going to bear the standard of the king to represent their authority. And yet God uses a shepherd, some of the lowest people in Israelite society, to go and bring the good news of Jesus. Maybe you'd want, and this is the way I think, gosh, it'd be really easy if the angels are so convincing. Let's send the angels everywhere. Let's have the angels come at all times to all peoples and just declare, hey, Jesus is real, believe in him. It'd be really easy if it's that effective, right? No. In the perfect wisdom of God, he he chose these humble men to herald the coming of the humble king. And notice the pattern of how God made known the word. The word comes from the angels, it produces vibrant faith, and immediately there is testimony to that good news. The shepherds immediately share it. And this is the pattern that is demonstrated regularly through the New Testament. The word of God is received, believed, and proclaimed. The good news of Jesus Christ, as you and I hear it, didn't come through the appearing of angelic beings who speak of a baby being born. You and I did not see that. We read about it. We've heard about it. This announcement has come only one time to a select few. What the shepherds saw and what they heard has reverberated throughout history in their oral testimony recorded in Scripture. So you and I know this happened not because we saw it, but because like those in the manger, the saying was made known to us. To whomever it was that gave Luke the full account of Christ's birth. Friends, you and I now have this full, accurate, completely reliable account of all of God's revelation. We carry it in our hands. We have the full story of redemption all the way through. We know more than Mary and Joseph did back then. We have the full, sufficient revelation of the Word of God. And it's the same word that is sufficient when received and believed by the supernatural work of God, it is able to produce faith in those who hear it. Maybe this is what you need right now as you think about Christmas, as you think about gathering, you have a Christmas party, you're going to go meet with family, you're going to meet with those family members who are questioning you, why do you go to that church? Why do you believe those things you do? You must be crazy. And all you want is for angels to show up and convince your family and your friends. Jesus is real. And he has saved me. Friends, I want you to know that your family members, your friends, have everything that God intended them to have to know Jesus. They have your, the word that you would speak, the word of God, your testimony of how God has even worked and saved you. It's not the eloquence or sheer emotional will in our sharing of Christ. It is the word of God that is sufficient. We need not feel tempted to embellish the story or feel embarrassed by our belief in the virgin birth. We need simply to tell the truth. And it is the Holy Spirit who must do the rest. I want to close with the last part of our passage this morning, verses 19 through 20. It reads, Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they heard and seen, as it had been told them. Friends, the Lord made good on His promises to us. We have beheld a great light, one that has pierced the darkness. Christ the Savior, the Son of David, was born. Our God has come down to earth, condescended, took on mortal flesh to be the Lamb of God. Who takes away the sins of the whole world? This is the good news that the angels of heaven announced with thunderous praise. This is the good news that caused all to hear it rejoice with great joy. And this is the good news that still rings out for all the peoples your peoples, the peoples in this country, the people that you know whose hearts seem so hard. This is still the good news. It's my prayer that your hearts would rejoice in this truth again, this season, today, like the shepherds, like those in the manger that, uh, that heard this testimony, that this Christmas season, as you reflect on the film, fulfillment of God's promises for you, you would rejoice in Christ. May I just give you one suggestion, one that's helped my family the last two years. It's two weeks till Christmas, that's 14 days. My, let me encourage you, families, whether you're family or single, whatever, read two chapters each day. Luke 2 and Matthew 2. Luke 2, which we just read, is all about Jesus' birth, and Matthew 2 follows, is what follows Jesus' birth. Read these each day. Marvel at what the Lord did in the birth of his Son. Hear again the promises that were kept thousands of years. God has kept his promise. And kids, by the end of two weeks, you'll probably be able to recite the whole story. In fact, if you do, and you recite it before Pastor Aubrey, he'll give you 100 dirhams. So just <laughs> no pressure, but let this story cut through the busyness, the noise, the distractions that come at the end of the year, so you can focus your minds and hearts on the greatest news the world has ever heard. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we can never tire of hearing this good news. It will never grow old. It will never be history only. It's not a story that is politely told. It is our only hope. We cling to these promises that you have made. We marvel at what you have done in sending your son Jesus And you have for us this treasure in your word, that we can see all the ways in which you have orchestrated all of history, every king, every mountain, every piece of uh, history, all these countries and how they've come together, you have organized and arranged so that Christ would be preeminent. And so we want that for our own lives. Help us to see in this season these promises kept. May we glorify you and encourage one another in it, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.